I hope that you will join me with an open Bible in the book of 2 Samuel as we look together at chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Now that David has been established as God's king over all Israel, and now that he has his capital city and he has defeated Israel's enemies, the Philistines, now David attempts to restore true worship to God's people. And he does that by bringing the Ark of the Covenant. And as you should know from Indiana Jones, this is a golden-plated box that symbolized God's presence with his people. And so David's intention is to bring that Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, where God's people can have a centralized location for worship. But despite all of David's planning and his good intentions, it turns out to be an abysmal failure. It's not because of anything we would associate with a failed worship service. It's not because attendance was too low. All Israel is a part of this. It's not because the music was substandard or because it didn't meet people's preferences. We've got a whole orchestra of instruments here, and God's people are singing God's praises together. It's also not because the preaching was boring. It had nothing to do with any of those things, and yet it becomes deadly wrong, deadly wrong. So what was the problem? The problem is simply carelessness, carelessness. And it's something that can afflict our worship now and something we need to be on guard against continually. But we need to note that this carelessness is not a lack of planning or a lack of forethought. It has nothing to do with any of those things. The carelessness is a result of failing to worship God in the way God wants to be worshipped. A failure to worship God in the way that God wants to be worshipped. And to rightly understand worship and what the scriptures teach us about worship, we need to establish two critical components of what true worship is. The first is that we tend to limit the extent of worship. We think of worship as something that religious people do in a certain place on a certain day of the week at a certain time, right? Whereas worship, biblically defined, is happening all the time. Whether you believe in God or not, we are all continually worshiping. So it's not a matter of whether or not you worship. It's a question of who you worship and how you worship. We worship whatever we consider to be worthy. Whatever we spend our time doing, wherever we go, however we spend our money, those are the things that show who we worship and how we worship. So whether you're religious, not religious, a Christian, not a Christian, not really sure, we all worship. We all worship. The next thing we need to understand about worship, 
biblically defined, is taught to us by the Lord Jesus in his conversation with a woman at a well. A scandalous conversation, in fact, where Jesus confronts her about her need for living water, and he even brings up her sex life in the midst of it. And in the midst of that, she's wondering, what does real worship look like? She says, well, as a Samaritan, we have our mountain where we worship. You Jews have Jerusalem. And Jesus says, real worship, true worship, the worship that God really wants has nothing to do with any of those things. In fact, it has to do with spirit and truth. As Jesus says in John 4, verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. God is Spirit. That means God does not have a body as we have a body. God is not limited to any particular place or location. God should be and God can be worshipped anywhere. And God wants us to worship him in spirit, in spirit, from our soul, from our heart, with emotion. But more than that, he wants us to worship him in truth, in truth. And you'll notice the NIV says, in the spirit, capital S. Well, it's only by the work of the Holy Spirit the very presence of God with us, that we are awakened to see the beauty of what God has done for sinners in Christ Jesus. And it's only through the Holy Spirit that we are awakened in our spirits, in our souls, to see and to savor all that Jesus has done for sinners. We need the Spirit. Both are true, the Spirit and our spirit as regulated by God's truth. Because emotion without truth is simply a chaotic frenzy. A chaotic frenzy. But truth without emotion is simply empty ceremony and ritualism. And that's not how God wants his people's worship to be. He wants our worship to be expressive and exacting. And so to understand why David's attempt at worship was such a failure, and to know how we can offer God not what we think God wants, but what God actually says he wants, worship that is in spirit and in truth, we need to see this overall big picture, this big idea. And that is that true worship The worship God wants should spring from your spirit, and it should be shaped by His truth. It should spring from your spirit, from your heart, and it should be shaped by His truth. And this means that worship is something that should be handled with care, because we're dealing with the things of God here. The God of the universe who created this world and who sustains this world every single moment. 
We can't be half-hearted about this. We can't be casual about this. We can't be superficial about this. True worship, real worship, as defined by God through Scripture, should spring from your spirit and be shaped by his truth. And so we need to be careful. How can we be careful to not misunderstand worship and to not offer God something that God does not want from us? Well, for that, we turn to 2 Samuel 6, and let's read together verses 1 to 2. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. We need to be careful with our definition of God. You need to be careful with your definition of God, how you image God, how you think of God. Because we're not free to imagine God however we please. God has revealed himself. God has made himself known. And this ark for God's people then was a visual witness, a symbol of who God was with his people. And while we don't have that kind of symbol now, we still need to understand how Israel understood God from what he had revealed. Here's what we need to see. The first is that God reveals himself to his people. God reveals himself to his people. This golden box was to be designed in a very specific way, as instructed by God to Moses for the people. You read about those instructions in Exodus 25. And this ark, this box, was to contain God's written word, his commandments, written in stone to his people. Those commandments that were intended to regulate their life together. God reveals himself. As we see in Psalm 99, this is the Lord who reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. On top of this ark were cherubim, angels, whose faces were covered by their wings, showing that this is a God who does reveal himself to his people, but does not reveal himself fully. There is always a mysterious element to God. There is always something about God that is incomprehensible to human beings, and we need to be humble enough to acknowledge that. But God knows that we are tactile creatures, and we need tangible reminders of who he is. And so now God reveals himself through his written word, through his proclaimed word, what's happening right now, and through what we call the ordinances, what the Lord Jesus commanded his church to be doing through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. Tangible, tactile reminders of who God is and what he's done for his people. God reveals himself. He also relates to his people. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is symbolizing that this is a God whose name, whose reputation, whose renown is made known among his people. It's the Ark of the Covenant, that is, of God's relationship 
with his people, what he has promised to be and what he has promised to do for them. And the NIV translates this as the name of the Lord Almighty. Literally, it's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heavenly armies. This is a God of power and of might for his people. He relates to his people and see how he is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Enthroned. This is the footstool of God's heavenly throne. And we may think, well, this is kind of silly that these Israelites thought that way. They thought God could be contained in a box. They, they knew better. They did know better. And you see this when, for example, Solomon is dedicating the temple and he says, God, we know that no box, we know that no tabernacle, no temple could ever contain you. Nevertheless, we are so thankful to you, God, that you have been gracious enough to dwell with your people and to rule and to exercise your rule through your people and in your people. Be careful with your definition of God. Is your definition of God based on who God says he is? Or is it based on how you like to think of God and what your preferences are about God? Be honest. Because so often people say, well, I just don't like to think of God doing something like that. And if that's your mindset, you're really not going to like 2 Samuel 6. But what we have to remember, if we are to worship God truly, if, if we are to give God the attention and the worship that he wants, that springs from our spirit, and that is shaped by his truth, we need to remember that we exist for God. God does not exist for us. Therefore, worship is about God. That should be obvious, and yet so often we treat worship as in a worship service where we come sit in a particular place or, or watch something for a particular length of time as, as if we were going to the movies as a movie critic. And we think of worship as a form of entertainment for us. And we sit back and we think, well, I didn't really like the music today. That wasn't, I don't like it when they use that instrument, or I just can't get into that. Or, wow, the preacher was just really off his game today. Uh, maybe he'll do better next week. We think of it as entertainment. Now, to be clear, worship should be relevant. It should be relevant. And I want my preaching to be relevant. Because there is nothing and there is no one in this universe more relevant than God and those of us who know God and who speak of God should never, ever be boring. Should never, ever be boring. We do want to be relevant. This should affect real life. But we need to be aware of this danger that is rampant in culture today, and especially in church culture, where we treat church like consumers. And everything about our culture has trained us to be good consumers. And we can expect church to pander to us, to cater to our superficial desire for clickbait and to get a dopamine rush. Worship is not about you. We need to be crystal, crystal clear about that. We exist for God. God does not exist for us. We 
We're created to worship God. Be careful about your definition of God. Next, we move to verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. What do we do with this? Worship has turned deadly for God's people here. But we need this solemn reminder that worship, real worship, true worship, is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death. We are dealing with the things of God. We can never forget that. But we need to see how their intentions are so good here, right? Be careful with your intentions. Be careful with your intentions because we see good intentions are not good enough. Good intentions are not good enough. It would seem that David has a desire to worship God. They go to where the ark of God has been secluded ever since the days prior to King Saul. It's been ignored by the people of Israel. And David wants to bring the ark of God front and center to make worship accessible for all the people of Israel. He goes to the house where it's been kept in seclusion, and they set the ark of God on a new cart out of reverence for it. And these sons of Abinadab, Uzzah and Ahio, guide the cart very carefully. They walk in front of it. God's people join in song. It's a harmonious, happy scene, so joyful. And they hit a pothole, and Uzzah just reaches out to keep the ark of God from falling over. And bam! He's struck dead. What in the world is happening? Is God just prone to fits of rage like this? How should we understand this? Be careful with your intentions. Because while their intentions may have been good, what they're doing is in direct disobedience to what God revealed. We see this in Numbers chapter 4, where it is specified only the Kohathites, which is a, a family, a tribe among the Levites who helped the priests, only the Kohathites are to carry the ark. Not just anyone. And it is specified in number seven that the ark of God is to be carried, not put on a cart. But Moses, this is 
number 7, verse 9, but Moses did not give any to the Kohathites, that is, an oxen or a cart, because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. Carelessness. Well-intentioned, but careless, and therefore disobedient, and therefore short of what God wants from his people in worship. Direct disobedience. So something we need to remember here is that the health of worship, whether we're talking about a worship service or worship as a lifestyle, and the health of a church must be measured by more than harmony and happiness. And yet so often, if you ask a typical churchgoer, how are things at church? Well, if everybody's getting along, then it's good, right? You're loving the music. The preacher's on fire. No conflict. Then it's great. But when there's conflict, oh, I just don't even want to go to church anymore. Oh, we are so superficial and shallow in how we measure our health and the health of a church. Externally, this is a beautiful scene. Look at all the music and the joy. And there's the ark of God. This is glorious. And yet, God shows it is flawed, deeply flawed, so deeply flawed that it's ultimately of no value as far as worship is concerned. They may feel good about themselves, but it's not worship. Real worship is more than the chills and the thrills of your emotions in any given moment. Real worship is not about the externals. It is not about an emotional high. It's not about a feeling. But if there's no feeling, if you don't feel any affection for God's truth, for God's word, for the worship of the Lord, well, that's a problem as well. God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth, both simultaneously. Remember that. Be careful about your intentions. Good intentions are not good enough. But why does God do this to Uzzah? Is this really so wrong? Does God have to be so severe? While we know that God has every right to carry out his punishment because of their disobedience, they have disobeyed a direct command of God, and while we're given that explanation, the writer doesn't really spell out what the problem is. You see how the NIV tries to interpret it with uh, his irreverent act in verse 7, but the Hebrew uses a very rare word, and probably it would be preferable to just leave it vague, his error. He did something wrong. What did he do wrong? The, the narrator doesn't spell that out. And so what we need to remember, and this is so hard for us to remember and so hard for us to accept, but God doesn't need to justify himself to you or to me. God doesn't need to win your approval or mine. God is not in the people-pleasing business. It is God's sovereign prerogative to do as he pleases. And if he pleases to punish Uzzah, 
He is within his rights. After all, Uzzah is a sinner just like you are, just like I am. And God is fully within his character as revealed in his word to punish sinners. And it's not for us to question God. We need to know that. If we are to worship God with proper reverence, proper awe, if we are to handle the things of God with care, you need to remember that. God doesn't need to justify himself to you or to me. But so often our response is like David's in verse 8. Then David became angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. That is, the Lord breaks out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. We need to be careful with our emotions. Be careful with your emotions. This doesn't make any sense to David. And so notice how his first response is to become angry. Now, part of that anger is directed at God, I think. He's no doubt angry at the whole situation that this joyous occasion has been ruined, that his good intentions for his people have become an abysmal, deadly failure. He's upset about the situation, but some of his venom is no doubt directed at God. God, what are you doing? Isn't this what you would want? And then notice how that anger transitions into fear. David was afraid of the Lord, we read in verse 9. And that anger and that fear led him to distance himself from God. He didn't want the ark anywhere near him. How can I have the ark with me? And so who does he give it to? He gives it to a Gittite. What's a Gittite? A person from Gath. Where is Gath? A Philistine. Let a Philistine, probably a Philistine who's living among the people of Israel, let him deal with God and this ark. I don't want it. I don't want to be near God. And what you need to know in your life is that sometimes life just doesn't make sense. And you can't reconcile who you believe God to be with this event. And you don't know how to interpret it. You don't know how to understand it. What do we do with this? This is where we need to be careful with our emotions. Because while you will feel some anger, you can't really control your emotions. You feel what you feel, right? But you can control what you do with that anger or with that fear. And we see two very different kinds of fear. The the right kind of fear of God that the Bible describes as the beginning of wisdom should lead us to come to God, to run to God, to go to Him with our burdens, with our worries, with our confusion, with our doubts, Go to him. Whereas unhealthy fear that we see in David leads us to isolate ourselves from God, to ignore God, to pretend as though God isn't there. 
be careful with your emotions. Be honest with yourself about how you feel about God and this, and this thing, whatever it is in your life. We all have things in our lives that we just don't understand, and we're trying to figure out, where is God in that? Why? Why did this happen? Why did he let that happen? Go to God. Let your emotions drive you to him, and he is faithful. He is faithful to provide. He may not give you an answer and tell you, Dane, here's why I allowed that. Here's why I did that. But he will give you what you need. Not necessarily what you want, but what you need. And sometimes what we need is a peace that surpasses all understanding. And to know that God is God and we are not. Well, as it happens, though, God blesses this Philistine with the ark. And God shows that he is free to do as he pleases. He is free to do as he pleases. If he chooses to bless a Philistine, so be it. So look at what happens next in verse 12. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. We have a picture here of how joyful and beautiful True worship can be for God's people. This is what it's supposed to look like. But to get to this point, be careful with your interpretations. Be careful with your interpretations. How you filter what comes your way in the form of circumstances or your life. Be careful with your interpretations because what was it that drove David to get the ark back? Well, he sees that God is blessing this Philistine. And he is evaluating God and he's evaluating his life based on the works of God, what's happening in the world that is governed ultimately by God. Instead of interpreting the works of God through the word of God, through what God has revealed, when we interpret life and interpret our circumstances through the Word of God, we see what happens in verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, who bore it, notice it's not on a cart now. It's not pulled by oxen now. They are carrying it. Now they are obedient. Now they are worshiping according to what God has revealed. Now they are giving God what God wants. Because when we don't give God, God what He wants, we're just flattering ourselves and ultimately worshiping ourselves and therefore becoming idolaters. But when we interpret our lives in light of God's Word, it's as though it's been said you can put on glasses. You use the glasses of God's Word and the truth of God's Word and the doctrine of God's Word to filter life and to filter the world, to filter the news. So, 
how are you interpreting life right now? Are you relying on what God has said? Or are you just looking around and trying to make sense based on your own limited understanding? This is what true worship looks like. This is what real worship looks like. This is worship that springs from the Spirit and that is shaped by God's truth. Yes, it's deadly serious, but it's also full of joy. It shows us that it's something that needs to be handled with care. And it shows us that if we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, we worship a God who has handled your life with care. Don't believe that? This is a God who so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's who this God is. God has handled the salvation of his people with such care that he gave his own son. He did not spare his dearest for needy sinners like you and like me. And so, I challenge you to ask the question, are you handling your life with care? And the ultimate test of whether or not you're handling your life with care is how you handle Jesus Christ and what you say about him. Because Jesus Christ is the one who has reconciled a God who is holy, who is righteous, who is pure, with sinners who are everything but those things, who are unholy, unrighteous, impure. Jesus has made it possible through his shed blood and through his triumphant resurrection for you and for me to approach God. Yes, with reverence, but with joy, with hope, with love. Are you handling your life with care today. That starts with handling the things of God with care. His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for not leaving us to reach around trying to make sense of who you are. We thank you that even though some things are hidden from us, that you are a God who has spoken. You reveal, you teach, you instruct, you illustrate. And I pray, Lord, that this example from this story so long ago wouldn't just be something that we leave on a page, that it wouldn't just be something that we ponder and then forget about. I pray that through the work of your Spirit, you would impress upon our hearts the truth that you are God, and we are not. You are holy. We are sinners. 
But I pray also, Lord, that you would show us your abundant grace and your mercy that you have made known to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we would come boldly with confidence to your throne of grace so that we might receive the help we need. So that we wouldn't just limit worship to something we do in a certain place on a certain day at a certain time, but that we would worship you in spirit and in truth day in and day out, Lord, because we confess we need you and we are nothing apart from you. I pray for everyone hearing this message that we would all be led to follow you, to love you, to trust you, and to worship you as you want to be worshiped because you are truly worthy of our worship. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the service of worship. If you have any questions or, or prayer concerns, if you'd like to talk about what it means to be a Christian, please reach out by email. I pray that God blesses you and your family and gives you a wonderful week.